Baxi's Musical Podcast. One of the great things about doing this podcast has been discovering music that I simply didn't pay enough attention to over the years. There's lots of stuff out there that simply fell through the cracks or went on the back burner or turned to deaf ear or any number of hack cliches that make me feel better about making some of the most shameful musical decisions of my life. And I could kick myself for making some of those bad choices. Thankfully, a man's record collection can be quite forgiving. So when you finally get around to discovering music that was released when you were nine, no one needs to know about that, especially when you're already in your 50s. And if and when you do populate your collection to correct your errors and judgment, the only person that really needs to know about it is you. And thank goodness. Which brings me to Sparks. Sparks is a band that some of you may have heard of. The rest of you, maybe not. It's been said that Sparks is the greatest band you've never heard of. But if you have, then there are two directions that you can go. You're either dangerously obsessed with Sparks or you are the guy who must endure listening to an obsessive Sparks fan try to convince you that Sparks is about to become the most richly rewarding musical experience of your life. Those are the two options. And today, you're going to listen to me try to convince you of exactly that. Since 1971, Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks have released 26 studio albums 49 singles, and 12 compilations, and yet they have been the most overlooked and simultaneously influential band of all time. In July of 2020, I interviewed Spark singer Russell Mayle on the podcast to find out how a band with that much brilliant music can fly under the radar for 50 years. I interviewed him just before Sparks was about to enjoy an improbable resurgence, or in their case, it was more of a surgence. This was more than a year before filmmaker Edgar Wright would release his incredible documentary about the Mail Brothers called The Sparks Brothers, which you can see on Netflix. It was also just before the release of their first full-length feature film, Annette, starring Adam Driver, a film that was written and scored by Ron and Russell Mail and appeared at the Cannes Film Festival in France. And this year, Sparks has hit the road for their longest U.S. tour in decades and performing for the very first time live since 2018. My job today is to introduce you to what might just be their finest moment. And if you're already a fan of Sparks, then my job just got a whole lot easier because then my job will be to tell you everything you already know about their stunning 1974 album, Kimono My House by Sparks. Today's pick from Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's musical podcast. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with a largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts, with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary, they're a destination. To find out more, visit cannaprovisions.com. Adults 21, please, and please consume responsibly. And now, let's get into the show. So here's my deal with Sparks. I learned about Sparks in 1983 when they released a video for the single Cool Places featuring Jane Wyland from the Go-Go's. And even though I thought it was an insanely catchy song at the time, I really didn't know very much about these guys and I didn't take the time to dive right into their music. 
that wouldn't come for another 35 years where I not only forced myself to listen to their music, I found myself being completely hooked, wondering how I let this massive body of brilliant work slip through my fingers. Like, how did I not know about the genius of Ron Mayle's songwriting? How did I not know about the astounding brilliance of his lyrics? How did I not know about the dizzying range of Russell Mayle's singing voice? I still don't have answers to any of that stuff. All I can tell you is that I've spent the last few years collecting nearly everything they've ever released because the Sparks catalog is one of the most richly diverse, complicated, hilarious, entertaining, challenging, and satisfying bodies of work that I own. There's simply nothing like Sparks. In spite of the fact that their influence on the music that you probably love is undeniable without you even knowing about it. Whether it be their early glam rock albums like Indiscreet and Propaganda or their groundbreaking phase of electronic dance music with Giorgio Moroder with Number One in Heaven to the early new wave records such as Womp That Sucker or Angst in My Pants to the highly orchestrated masterpiece Little Beethoven. Sparks has released a stunning bunch of music and after spending the first five decades avoiding them in every opportunity, I can now say with confidence that Sparks have now become one of my all-time favorite bands. So how did I finally get hooked on Sparks? Well, it was by accident. I was going through music for a radio show that I do every Sunday night called Baxi's Musical Fun Bag. I was sifting through all sorts of stuff online when I suddenly came across Sparks. I remembered the song Cool Places. I remembered their song I Predict from 1982. I also vaguely remember hearing their 1979 single Beat the Clock. But beyond that, I was as mystified as anybody else. What I remember most about Sparks is what they look like. Well, I remember what Ron looked like. Because while Russell looked like a stereotypical pop star, his older brother Ron's most distinguishing feature was the mustache. And depending on what side of the fence you were playing on, you either saw it as the mustache recreation of Charlie Chaplin or the mustache of Adolf Hitler. Either way, you were never going to forget what that guy looked like, even if you didn't know a lick of his music. Anyhow, I was going through their music online, and I noticed that their most popular song was something called This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. According to Spotify, that song had already been played 13 million times, and I was about to listen to it for the very first time by hitting play. As it turns out, I had heard the song before, but many years later, I just hadn't listened to it. Because upon further review, I sat there totally blown away by what I had just heard. In fact, I believe the exact words that poured out of my mouth were, what the fuck was that? Three minutes and four seconds later, I played it again. Because I believe what I had just sat through was maybe, possibly, one of the greatest songs that I had ever heard in my life. I then looked up the album, 1974's Komodo My House. And since it was the album's opening track, I listened to it for a third straight time, only to find out that every song on that album was equally fantastic. And as a compulsive record-buying nutcase, I needed to hear more. I needed to hear all of it, and I did. So who are these guys, and what is it about this town ain't big enough for the both of us and Kimono My House that led to a prolific record-buying frenzy? Well, buckle yourself up and pay attention. Ron and Russell Mayo grew up in Pacific Palisades, California. Russell was a good-looking high school quarterback. Ron was a socially awkward and insanely literate young kid who stayed home and focused on his piano lessons. While both attending UCLA in the mid-60s, they formed a band called Urban Renewal Project with some fellow students. But in 1967, they recorded a four-song demo, of which 
Ron Mail had written all the songs, The Windmill, A Quick Thought, As You Like It, and Computer Girl. None of them were great, but the males realized that this is what they wanted to do with their lives. They wanted to create music, and to do that, they changed the name of the band the following year and called themselves Half Nelson. Now, at this point, the band was a trio and included Ron, Russell, and guitarist Earl Mankey. But by the time the band had accumulated enough songs to record their first album, the band had added Earl Mankey's brother Jim on bass and drummer Harley Feinstein. The first demo was recorded in Mankey's home studio, and the tapes were distributed all over the place to record companies all over the city of Los Angeles. The demos caught the attention of Todd Rundgren, who at this point in his early career had only produced a handful of projects like The Band and Badfinger and a country rock outfit called The American Dream. Half Nelson released their self-titled debut album in September of 1971 on Bearsville Records, where it was greeted by a largely apathetic general public. At the insistence of one record executive, the primary reason for the lack of sales must have been that the band needed a new name. He insisted that they change the name from Half Nelson to the Sparks Brothers. The brothers hated that idea, but chose to compromise by ditching the name Half Nelson and renaming them simply Sparks. To capitalize on this exciting development, the guys repackaged the first record, gave it a new cover with a new name, and re-released it in July of 1972. And while that seemed like a solid marketing approach at the time, the album sold just as poorly. But rather than accept defeat, Sparks went on to record their second album in February of 1973, a woofer in tweeters' clothing. Again, the band had high expectations, and despite releasing the clever single Girl from Germany, the second album didn't sell very well either. So now, Sparks was at somewhat of a crossroad. They had released two albums that nobody bought, and while most bands might have packed things up and moved on, Ron and Russell Mail refused to give up. Now, while both of their records failed to get any attention in the United States, there was evidence of actual sales occurring in the UK. And since they weren't really making much headway in Los Angeles, it was suggested that what they really should do was ditch the sun and fun of sunny California and head to England instead, where the glam rock of David Bowie and Mark Boland were all the rage. The males accepted the offer, ditched the other members of the band, and headed to England in hopes of finding a new band, one a little bit more English, one that would appeal to the British, one that was less American. And that's exactly what they found. The Mankey brothers and Feinstein were replaced by guitarist Adrian Fisher, bass player Martin Gordon, and drummer Norman Dinky Diamond. This left Ron to become the band's primary songwriter, and during this stretch, Ron composed songs that would soon be put on their next album. But unlike the experimental tone of their earlier Sparks material, Ron's songwriting began taking an evolutionary turn. Suddenly, the songs were becoming slightly less experimental and more pop-driven, and yet there was still a broad cinematic feel to these new songs that wasn't so out of step with what was going on musically in the U.K., Ron was developing lyrically, too, taking self-effacing themes and colliding them with innuendos and humor and irony, from the waltz-inspired falling in love with myself again to frantic rockers like Thank God It's Not Christmas and Talent is an Asset. This was already shaping up to be something totally different and unique, even by early Spark standards. In a way, Ron's lyrical style was not that unlike the lyrics of Frank Zappa, but unlike Zappa's best lyrics, Ron's were perhaps even more sophisticated. Add that to the fantastic musicianship from the rest of the band to Russell's completely indescribable vocal style, and there would simply be no question that this record was about to become something completely unforgettable. Having sold a modest number of copies with their first two records in the UK, 
Sparks was signed to Island Records, which was quickly becoming a major record label that was not only responsible for bringing reggae to the international attention of the West with Toots and the Maytals and Bob Marley. Island had also signed bands like Roxy Music, Traffic, King Crimson, Cat Stevens, and Steve Winwood as a solo artist. Initially, the band were hoping their third album would be produced by Roy Wood, who had been the founding member of both The Move and the Electric Light Orchestra. Unfortunately, Roy Wood was already working on other projects, including his solo career and his next band called Wizard. Instead, the producing job went to Muff Winwood, the former bass player for the Spencer Davis Group and the older brother of Steve Winwood. And as it turned out, Muff Winwood would become the perfect guy to produce this record. Because when Kimono My House opens up with This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, it's enough to leave you speechless. It's a song that starts off quietly with Ron's chintzy electric piano, Russell's anxiety-fueled vocals, a gunshot, and then there's an explosion of tension between the drums by Dinky Diamond and Adrian Fisher's heavy guitar riff. This song was like a Hollywood Western set to music and then set on fire. It was the most ironically confident-sounding song that Sparks had released up to that point in their career. And while the title of the song originated from an old movie cliche, that's where the cliches stop. This was hardly a typical love song because Ron's lyrics suggested an internal struggle of someone battling their deep anxieties about meeting women, building up their hopes only to back down and resign themselves to defeat, humiliation, and failure. It's classic Ron Mail, where he takes you one place and in the blink of an eye destroys everything perfectly. And as great as This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us would be, there were other amazing songs on the album as well. Songs like Amateur Hour, Hasta Manana Monsieur, Equator, Complaints, Here in Heaven. The album is just one joyful, twisted sack of crushing insecurities and self-scrutiny. And that's probably why I love it so damn much. Now, having said that, there are many people who will say that the thing that takes the album over the edge isn't just the songwriting or the lyrics, it's Russell's voice. In order to understand his voice, you have to consider that his brother Ron didn't write songs to suit Russell's voice. They're not written in a certain key. They're written to express a narrative that is purely Ron Mail's doing. That means that Russell is the one that has to adjust. And if that means singing in the highest falsetto imaginable to accomplish that feat, then so be it. Ultimately, it means that Russell Mail is often called upon to sing in a way that would be impossible for most human beings. And that's part of his genius because there is perhaps nobody alive on the planet that can interpret his brother's music quite like Russell Mail. And that's one of the ways in which Sparks ensures their uniqueness in the world. And it's freaking glorious. When Kimono My House was released in May of 1974, it didn't sell particularly well in the U.S., but it was a huge hit around Europe, reaching the top 10 in the U.K., Holland, Switzerland, and even in Australia and several other countries as well. The album was certified gold in Great Britain. In fact, because of their success on the U.K. charts, people were actually surprised to find out that they weren't British. In fact, they were two brothers from Southern California where, in spite of their growing international popularity, they were virtually unknown in their own backyard. Nevertheless, the album was both a commercial and critical success. It was a real breakthrough for Sparks. In fact, it would be their biggest-selling album of their career for the next 47 years until they released the album Hippopotamus in 2017. Seven months following the release of Kimono My House, Spark released their next equally fantastic follow-up, Propaganda, in November of 1974, with Muff Winwood producing again. The following year, they hooked up with David Bowie's producer, Tony Visconti, for 1975's Indiscreet. 
They work with Rupert Holmes on the album Big Beat in 1976. And while sales started to slip for the Mail Brothers by 1977 with their next album, Introducing Sparks, they completely reinvented themselves, working with Giorgio Moroder on their groundbreaking electro dance record, Number One in Heaven, in 1978, well before electronic dance music was actually a thing. All of it with the same magnificent songwriting and lyrical genius that Ron Mail was completely known for. The reality is, while Sparks may seem like nothing more than a cult band with an extraordinary sense of stamina, their music has influenced countless musicians who are indebted to their relentless vision and bottomless well of ideas. Yeah, you may not know Sparks, but if I can convert just one of you to seeing things my way, then today I will have done my job. Because the Sparks deep dive requires a little bit of commitment, but the rewards are extraordinary. From breathtaking songs like When Do I Get to Sing My Way, from their album Gratuitous Sax and Violins, from the hilarious I Predict from Angst in My Pants, to Dick Around from Fine Young Lovers, to My Baby's Taking Me Home from Lil Beethoven, to Lighten Up Morrissey from their album Exotic Creatures of the Deep. Sparks' music is boundless and brilliant and completely satisfying. It's just that not enough people know about it. And perhaps the best place to start would be with Kimono My House from 1974. From Sparks, today's pick on Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Thanks for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast, and thanks to Canna Provisions for their support. You can support them by checking out cannaprovisions.com, and you can email me at baxitrock102.com. Check out all the social media doohickeys, and we'll see you next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast.